Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Melbourne journalist Zara McDonald, that would be you, and Michelle Andrews, that would be me. Hello Michelle Andrews. Hello. Coming up on today's show, the YouTubers who made 3.2 million from their fake or maybe not so fake wedding, a return of The Bachelor and how conversations about polyamory keep permeating the mainstream. But before we say anything... Zara, we do need to issue a correction. A big correction. We tried to sound exotic when we pronounced Yelena Dokovic's name. We came out with Helena and Jelena. Yeah, it was neither. It's Yelena. Yes, it is Yelena. We are. You look like you were terrified when you said that then. Are you sure? No, I'm pretty sure. Thank you to everybody who got in touch about that. We are desperately sorry for butchering that name. But onwards. Michelle, how was your week? I'm going to flip this. I had a fantastic week. I did have a fantastic week. Fantastic. There was a little loss and a big win. My little loss, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. I had a listener reach out offering, and she did give me the caveat of don't get offended, which is always an interesting caveat (laughs) to a message. Don't get offended, Michelle, but I think you would be a great person to trial out our new anti-wrinkle treatment in our skin clinic. (laughs) And they did not send you this, Zara. I asked you when I received it. It was so awkward. You sent me the screenshot being like, well, they obviously, you know, would have messaged you. So I go quickly to my DMs and scroll through, and I didn't know what to say. She said to me, like don't get offended we just think you'd be a great candidate to trial this out not messaging me was a glaring omission in what world am i not going to be offended by that i'm sorry for anyone You're listening beautiful please don't send me any anti-wrinkle treatments i've already been called voldemort this week by a troll <laughs> oh my god <laughs> voldemort by a troll was pretty good it's better than being called a rug rat Really? I've been called a rug rat. Zara, I know. would you prefer to look like a rug rat or Voldemort? So true. We should poll that in the Facebook group. Would you rather look like Chucky <laughs> from Rugrats or Voldemort? <laughs> anyway. Big win? Yeah, my big win actually made everything so much better because you and I, Zara McDonald, were featured in the – well, not featured. Would we call it a feature? I'm not sure. Mentioned? Mentioned. There was an article written in the New York Times this week about the top four Australian podcasts to listen to on your commute and Shameless was featured. Go Shameless. <laughs> it feels like not mine. It feels like a tiny child. How do you think that happened? Why would um, the New York Times people – I think it was the Australian Bureau that wrote it. Yeah, it was the Australian Bureau for sure. Why would they have written that? I don't know. 
may be a bit of gender diversity across their suggestions. <laughs> Not to downplay it in any form, but it is good to have some gender diversity in those lists. My favourite part was that we were in a pretty good group of podcasts. Yeah. I felt like we were the weak link in a very strong group. We had Will Anderson. What is it? Like the worst house in the best street. <laughs> yeah, we were the worst house in the yeah. best street for sure. We were with Will Anderson from Willosophy, of course. Great podcast. 7am from Schwartz Media. Is yeah, it? that's a great daily news podcast if you are not across 7am. I listen to the squiz, but maybe I also need to give 7am a go. They're, they're different. So they both have their places. I pick and choose the episodes of 7am that I listen to. It's a bit like the daily in that they deep dive more than the squiz does. Gotcha. And then Wrong Skin, which I'm pretty sure won Best Podcast it of did. the Year at the Australian Podcast Awards. So I'm very, very stoked to be on that list. What about you? <laughs> no, I'm devastated. No, it was very <laughs> lovely on Friday to receive after a pretty busy week. So thank you to the NYT Australian Ooh, Bureau for that. Is that what we're calling them, the I, NYT? I, we're friends now. <laughs> and other than that piece of writing, would you recommend anything this week? I actually am going to recommend something that we worked on, which was last week, She's on the Money podcast yes. on investing. I know that sounds a little bit arrogant, but it's nothing to do with us, really. It's all to do with Victoria and Annabelle, who host the She's on the Money podcast. I think the way they broke down investing was so helpful and actually really thoroughly entertaining and enjoyable. I loved the episode. It's my favorite that we've done on She's on the Money so far. And I think women are so often shut out of the investing conversation that a really easy to listen to fun podcast that's only 40 minutes long is the perfect entry point into the investing game for probably all of the shameless listeners and beyond. Oh, completely. And we produced that one and we were sitting there the entire time learning so much. It starts incredibly base level. Like if you feel like you don't have enough base information to learn about investing, trust us, neither did we. So that's why we started at an incredibly basic and approachable level because we knew nothing either. Totally. So go listen to that. How was your week? My week was good. I think I lost the meme battle. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. Continue. Um, and that kept consuming my time. By the end of the week, I really couldn't give a fuck. The biggest mistake I made was telling people to DM me memes. Because <laughs> my inbox on Instagram has been a little bit fucked. I am so sorry to the people who I haven't like responded to saying, ha, 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 great meme. Because I've accidentally inundated myself. Which has been a great way to be inundated. What are the shameless listeners like when it comes to memes? Like, be uh, honest. Some are good. Some, <laughs> some need work. Coming and I from the loser of a meme <laughs> battle, that's very brazen. Of course. I mean, if you're going to be arrogant about anything, why not be about me? <laughs> um, otherwise, I listened to I listened to a great episode of Making Sense with Sam Harris with Ricky Gervais, which I recommended in our newsletter this week. It goes for about two hours, this podcast, but if you have a couple of hours for cleaning the house or in the car... I would so recommend listening to this episode. They talk so much about conversations we've actually had on the podcast about what kinds of things can you joke about, what's appropriate in 2019, how, what kind of role does comedy play in an increasingly kind of like woke <laughs> and a politically correct world. I don't necessarily agree with everything they say. Ricky Gervais has an interesting perspective on the old Louis C.K. return. That said... I think it's so important to hear those perspectives and to hear why comedians joke about the things that they do. And Ricky Gervais literally gives like very famous lines that he said that are, you know, infamously controversial and explains how he breaks that joke down and why he thinks it's an appropriate joke to crack. Did he address the transgender yes. quote? Yes. Mm. The first one from the Caitlyn Jenner one from yes. the Golden Globes. Yep. He did that. So that's why I found it really interesting because it wasn't this like very theoretical conversation. He very much made it tangible by using sort of lines he's quoted before and explaining them 
them and unpacking them. Interesting. So sifting through jokes is already made. Yeah. So I would very much recommend that. Should we talk about the meme battle very Maybe quickly? Maybe I'll put a um, drum roll in here. I mean, we all know who the winner was, but here's a drum roll. <laughs> I was so close to winning this thing. Before I I opened a can of worms by DIYing my own meme and then you realised you could do it too. Yeah, I mean, you didn't invent DIY memes, but that's fine. I planted a seed, Michelle. I do need to say for anyone who's listening to this, maybe go to the Shameless Podcast Instagram page while we talk about it. The meme that won me the gold medal wasn't necessarily mine alone. So I will say It wasn't that. at all. It was Evelyn's. It was your sister Evelyn's who is the Banksy of the meme battle. <laughs> She calls herself Banksy as well because she's like, no one knows it's me. I'm like a hidden artiste. This is my masterpiece. Maybe I'm going to drop out of medicine and pursue memes. An anonymous genius. So the meme that did win overall got over 7,300 likes, which is our top meme ever, was actually the meme that made a joke out of me constantly mispronouncing Marie Claire as Marie Claire. Do you know what confused me? And this is a very embarrassing point on my end. And also it very exposing. I didn't really understand the pop culture reference of the meme itself. Like I'd never seen that meme around. So when you sent it to me and said, this is the funniest thing I've ever created, I was very nonchalant about the entire thing. Yeah. Well, before I put it up on the Shame's Instagram account, I sent it to Zara to be like, I'm just going to tell you now, you've lost. Like this meme is going to win me the gold medal 100%. And you, you kind of replied being like, it's funny, but I don't get it. Yeah. And I questioned everything in my head for the next 12 hours. I was like, fuck, maybe this isn't the meme that's going to win me the battle. I wasn't even trying to screw you over. I just genuinely hadn't seen that meme around. A bit of background as well. The photo I used of you that I superimposed into an existing, I'm sure lots of the listeners will go and look at this and recognize the meme because it's a very popular meme style. The face from you is from a party we were at in January where you just didn't realize I was taking a photo of you and you weren't very happy about it. The photo of me. <laughs> Story of my life. I took about 20 versions of that photo of me actually sitting on a couch from the right angle so I could get the right shot and the right expression on my face to communicate what I wanted. Can we? That is meme effort. Can we post this afternoon a slidey of all of the selfies that you took to try and get that photo? Absolutely. Because you sent them to me and there was like 15 photos. How about a lunchtime treat <laughs> can be a slidey of all the photos I took to get the winning meme. Anyway, I did win the meme battle. I don't want to brag about it too much, but I did win. In fairness, you had much further to fall than I did. <laughs> I did. Well, this is the thing. I set you up as the underdog, and then I realized halfway through the week I needed to set myself up as the underdog. So I put a poll in the Facebook group knowing that everyone would vote for you. So there. Oh, yeah, right. You did not know that. You, st- you, really, you posted the poll, and I saw it like five hours later, and I was like, oh, this is a nice little surprise. What were the votes on that? I was slammed. It was, it was amazing. Like, it's the most I've ever won anything without realizing. <laughs> oh, anyway, I won. And so I'm still... Congratulations. I'm very happy for you. I really couldn't give a shit about this battle if I'm totally honest. Well, I don't give a shit because you lost, but we can stay in our roles. For those who don't know, Zara is the unofficial official head of Shameless Logistics. I'm the unofficial official head of Shameless Social Media. What's the bet that the Instagram password is going to be changed after this? Because I've only very recently been allowed to post memes. And when I say only very recently, I mean in the last week. You know what? I didn't mind some of yours. I liked... What did I like? The 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 guinea pig. 
actually, I have a I have a confession to make. That wasn't mine. That was Jen Day's. Our friend Jen Day actually took my side and was messaging me memes all week. And that one we were cacking ourselves about. What? So Jen is the Banksy of my team. <laughs> oh my God. Well, it looks like I beat you and I beat all the shameless listeners because everyone was sending you memes and I still won. There we go. Should we actually get into the show? <laughs> yes, we're starting again with possibly the most lowbrow story of the week. Sarah I McDonald. really, really back this one. So this is two. I'm not a huge YouTuber fan, but I'm very much into this story. So two of the world's most famous YouTubers got married. Yes. Made $3.2 million out of it by charging people to watch their live stream. And now people are wondering if it was actually a real marriage. Is yes. that a good summation? Wow. I'm surprised you know so much about a YouTube story. Excuse me. I do my research. So a bit of context for those who aren't across this. This is a marriage between Jake Paul. You might recognize the Jake Paul name because he's the brother of Logan Paul. Logan Paul was the man who shot to infamy in 2018 after he vlogged in a suicide forest. And I'm going to put inverted commas around that one because I don't know if anyone calls it a suicide forest other than Logan Paul in Japan where he filmed a dead body and put it on YouTube. YouTube then had to bring it down. Major YouTubers then came out and condemned him along with major publications and he had to do the whole like, I'm sorry, I'm reformed, I'm going to do better spiel. And it was a bit saccharine. And Logan Paul has since fucked up again. Oh, he fucks up all the time. Jake Paul also fucks up. There was a very prominent theme on YouTube earlier this year that he was a sociopath. Really? Yeah. I think um, it's a strange thing to just sort of start circulating the rumor mill. I'm really going down like a little tangent here. I don't mind them. Take me there. But uh, another really popular YouTuber, Shane Dawson, made an entire documentary series about whether or not Jake Paul is in fact a sociopath. Speaking to a psychologist, speaking to all these different people. Still inconclusive, not sure. Oh my gosh. (laughs) The world of YouTube is fucking weird. It actually feels like another world. Like I am sure there are people out there who are listening like me who actually don't spend much time watching YouTubers and these people feel like another world. Mm -hmm. That said, very interesting. Jake Paul's new wife slash maybe not wife is Tana Mojo. I'm always surprised that it's pronounced Mojo, but that's how she pronounces it. Looking at it, it looks like it should be pronounced Monjao. I know. I, I've been pronouncing it in my head Monjao, so I was really disappointed when you just pronounced it like that because I'm going to mess it up this entire segment. We're also the people who pronounce Yelena yeah. as Jelena. Yeah. So are we the queens of pronunciation? Probably not. So Tana Mojo. Do you know what Tana's famous for? Do you remember? Uh, she's 21. She Ooh, is someone's done their research. And she is famous for, okay, didn't her boyfriend break up with her and cheat on her? And then she uploaded like heaps of photos about it. Yeah, that's one thing that she's notorious for. But there was one big event last year, which was called <gasps> VidCon. No, TanaCon. Oh, damn. Good, close. <laughs> so Tana Mojo tried to run her own version of VidCon based around herself because VidCon didn't give her a creator pass. There was this whole drama. She did a vlog about it that went viral. What's VidCon for people who wouldn't know? VidCon is kind of like a major exhibition. So you know like the Bridal Expo? Yes. It's like the Bridal Expo but for YouTube stars. So little kids go along to see their favourite YouTubers. They pay a bunch of money on tickets. VidCon would make so much fucking money every year. VidCon has blatantly refused to recognize Tana Mojo since basically she became famous. And so she decided to go off and create her own version of VidCon. Slight downfall. She had no fucking idea what she was doing. She was 20 years old at the time and it became the biggest clusterfuck of events the US has ever seen. US has also seen Fire Festival, but I did see that this was called Fire Festival. Yeah, it was basically Fire Festival. Because I read that 20,000 people turned up because she didn't charge them entry and they couldn't fit all the people. So they had to shut it down straight away. Yeah. And people got like third degree burns because they were locked outside in the sun. It was just like... 
It was ridiculous. I think Shane Dawson also did a series on TanaCon. So Shane Dawson is kind of the one that brought these two together. Basically, they're the most controversial people on YouTube. They have massive, massive followings, probably 30 million people between them. And they've gotten married. So they started dating in April and I think 66,000 people, this is so many people, paid anywhere between $50 and $75 to watch the live stream of their wedding. Would you live stream yours? Uh, I probably wouldn't, but live streaming is actually a new trend that's very popular on YouTube and between YouTube stars at the moment because the Ace family, another popular YouTube family, charged people $5.99. Get this. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this. Charged people $5.99 to watch their family charity basketball event. So all proceeds made on the day from this basketball event went towards a charity. I think it was for sick kids. However, it was never quite clear what the Ace family did with this subscription model to actually watch the event. It looks like the pay-per-view just kind of lined their own pockets, perhaps. In that sense, they would have made a bucket load of money as well because they had so many people pay to watch the game. So there was nothing conclusive about whether the the people that paid subscriptions were also donating to charity. I read every article I could find and I could not find anything that was transparent about what happened to the pay-per-view money and it looks like it probably went to their bank account. Regardless, I think in an era where YouTube is taking a lot of money from YouTubers and YouTubers are struggling with algorithm, influencers are struggling with Instagram algorithms, this subscription kind of model is not a bad idea. And it is certainly not the first time that famous people have leveraged life events to make money. That's my first and overriding thought. Absolutely agree. Did you read? There was an amazing piece in BuzzFeed about this with Tanner and Jake this week by Pierre Dominguez. He wrote that this has basically been happening since 1950 when Elizabeth Taylor was using marriages for PR and for commercial gain. So those not aware, Elizabeth Taylor in 1950 married a playboy for, as like a promotional thing for her role in Father of the Bride. So the television network paid for her dress, they paid for the wedding, and that kind of catapulted her to fame and they ended up getting divorced months later. I think people's resentment from this is uh, a little multi-layered, but one of the things that people are really annoyed about is this one quote from Tana from an MTV episode of her show, mm-hmm. Tana Turns 21, you are welcome, <laughs> where she said... And she says it was since taken out of context that the wedding was something fun and lighthearted and that we are obviously doing for fun and content. Mm -hmm. Can that be taken out of context? No, I don't think it can. I think everyone with a brain can see that maybe these two are dating, maybe they're having sex, maybe they are in love with each other. Who knows? However, the layer on top of this that is undeniable is that they are using this relationship, whatever it may be, for their own commercial gain and for their own careers they know that by kind of banding together and doing this content together they are seeding each other's audiences out to each other and there's going to be a snowball effect i'm interested in why people care about this so much because it genuinely feels like a tale as old as time Mm. like two famous celebrities pretend to date to sort of seed their audiences out to each other that's not new i feel like truthfully as women particularly as women we have always been able to make good money from major life events like an engagement and a wedding and a baby and I think that does come down to the patriarchy because it speaks to what we're valued Mm -hmm. and how we're valued in today's society but I think when it comes to social media the difference now and the reason that people are wising up now is because we can almost see the machinations but underneath it all like we can see it all come to play we understand now how much money it is because people are actually doing the maths on how many people live streamed and how much 
much people paid. Whereas we didn't see that back when two celebrities were pretending to date. We often didn't know that they were pretending to date. And I think that's the difference. Absolutely. I think it has a lot to do with being uncomfortable with other people, particularly public figures, making a mockery of something that we intrinsically value. Do you think it's the wedding thing? Yeah, I think it's the wedding thing. I I think we take weddings so seriously and the average person sees their wedding as their most, I don't know, the average person holds up their wedding day as the most important day of their life. I mean, why else is the average wedding costing tens of thousands of dollars? Why do we funnel so much of our time and energy into one single day? It's because we all value it. And when we see someone like Tana Mojo and Jake Paul hold it up and say, we're actually just going to beat the shit out of this and use it like a pinata to get cash, that's uncomfortable for a lot of us. Myself, on the other hand, I mean, I'm excited to one day get married, but I've never really thought about it that much. I do have a tiny bit of respect for this. I think, fuck it, why not? If you're going to make money out of this and you're going to boost your profile out of this, whatever, they're not holding themselves up to be the most sophisticated, intelligent YouTubers of all time. They've always held themselves up to be controversial. So they're not deviating from anything. If anything, they're just taking that and championing it even more. I actually think I fundamentally disagree that the resentment comes from the fact we value weddings because I don't actually know if as a collective we value weddings as much as we think that we do. I think we spend so much on weddings because we feel like we have to, not because we feel like it's the most important day of our life. I actually think the resentment comes from someone being able to make such a bucket load of money by being so shameless about it. <laughs> like we hate people that make money in stupid ways. And I think that's what it's about. This sense of maybe it's a bit grabby. Like we don't like grabbiness when mm. it comes to money. We want people to be really dignified in their pursuit of money not so like ostentatious about it, I guess. I wonder if that's an Australian thing. I wonder if people in the US where Tana and Jake Paul are from actually feel that way because I think that's a cultural thing about Australia perhaps. It does remind me a lot of Kim Kardashian yeah. and Chris Humphreys and then divorcing him, what, like 70 days later. I'm seeing a lot of comparisons around that this week between those two weddings. But Kim Kardashian did come out a lot of times and said if people thought this was a business decision, it was a really fucking bad business decision, which I almost think might be true. Mm. I disagree. Do you think it was a good one? I think that was entirely PR. No, I think it was, I think it was, there was something in it, but I also don't think it went exactly to plan how they thought it would. Agree. Agree. One thing I did want to quickly touch on as well before we moved on was a quote from that BuzzFeed piece, which I found very interesting because much of the focus of this conversation of this wedding is about Tana and not Jake. Pierre Dominguez wrote, the point is that faux marriage moralizing coalesces, by the way, good word, haven't used that one before, (laughs) engendered ways that are seemingly never applied to men. That is in part because the wedding industrial complex is focused around women. There's no Grimzilla tradition. It's a reality that wedding content has been one of the biggest ways that mainstream culture celebrates white hetero femininity. So of course, women will use it to make a storyline or content out of it. So it speaks a lot to how these kinds of fake weddings have been pushed back on the woman rather than the man. And it's almost the man in these scenarios which reminds me again of Chris Humphreys, is like this unwilling, blind player that has no idea what's going on. Like a lost Labrador. Totally. And I don't think that Jake Paul is painted in a similar way, but he's not copying what Tana is. No, I don't think so. I mean, maybe it's stupid and maybe it's dumb and I do hate myself a little bit inside for following this so intently. But at the end of the day, if there's commercial demand for it and if they can do it, why not? I mean, if anything, they're smart business people. These are two young people who are never going to have to work another the day in their lives the amount of money they'd be raking in is obscene and they're not hurting anyone that's what it comes down to for me like literally nobody is being hurt people are handing over their money because they know exactly what they're going to get so in that sense i don't mind at all make money how they want to make money so long as they're not hurting people will you be paying 60 dollars to watch who you 
Oh, maybe. Yeah. I mean, Would I'm you pay sixty dollars to watch me? I mean, I'm pretty sure you pay more than that as a guest of a wedding anyway, <laughs> in a multiple different ways. So yes, I guess I will. Like, like the cream has risen to the top. Like the cream has risen to the top. Like the cream has risen to the top. Fucking remix that. I'll kill you. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we bring you five stories from the rough and tumble of the news cycle. Woohoo! Michelle Andrews, what have you got for me today? All right, my first story. Sorry, friends, despite the confusing 24 hours, Anthony and Jonathan of Queer Eye are not dating. That is from Junkie. Can you explain this to me? So I'm pretty sure this is another PR stunt, just like the first segment. For those who missed it, Anthony and Jonathan both posted together on Instagram. They were holding hands and the caption kind of alluded to them being each other's bays, like loving each other. Bay, I haven't heard that word in like a year and a half. I know. And they were obviously like pulling on the cute thread, holding hands, looking at each other, grinning. They knew exactly what they were doing. Exactly. And then Karamo, obviously also on the show, commented saying, ha ha ha, I love you both. And for all those who are asking, it's real. They are a couple and in love. First Fab Five couple. So obviously all these media publications picked this story up and ran with it. That This was the first Fab Five couple, that they were in love, that they've been secretly dating for a long time now. Then the men had to come out later and say, actually, no, we're not together. We've never been together. We are just platonic friends. I'm pretty sure this was all set up to stir a little bit of media attention and get eyeballs on these men, get eyeballs on their Instagram accounts, get eyeballs on the show because they've only just launched season four. I was just about to say it's been a long time since I've seen this much about Queer Eye and my newsfeed. And I, of all people who don't even watch the show, know that season four is launching. So they're doing a great job of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd be curious to know how season four is performing compared to previous seasons. I read a piece saying that people the, the love of Queer Eye isn't as strong yes. this season as it was for last season. So I feel like this must happen have a role to play. Absolutely. My second story, Love Island applications. Only six of 2019's contestants applied. That is from the BBC and obviously in regards to the UK version of the show. Does that surprise you? It does, actually. This is really important because at the moment there is an inquiry looking into Love Island and looking into other reality shows in Britain and how they affect the mental health of their contestants. Obviously, I love Love Island. It's my favorite show in the entire world, but it has also had two of its previous contestants suicide after their time on the show. And the BBC was kind of reporting around the fact that if people aren't volunteering to go on, if they've been plucked out of obscurity and plucked out of their, I don't know, famous Instagram channels, YouTube channels, whatever social media they're found on. Is that damaging? Are the people going on the show perhaps not having the full awareness and full mental process behind what going on Love Island might mean for their life? Whereas if you're applying, you've probably, there's like a difference there. Do you get me? The dynamic is different. No, I'm just thinking about it as we're talking about it. I mean, I can see a small difference, but I can't see it being marked. Like you've still got to go through the process of being picked to go on the show, which I imagine is still casting and stuff like that. Like you'd have to have some understanding of what you're doing. And I do wonder if we are talking about how to protect the mental health of reality stars, if we're looking in the wrong place, if that's where we're starting. Absolutely. Another really big change that's come into effect in the UK is that it is no longer okay to do lie detector tests on live television because lie detectors aren't really based in science and they're not really robust enough. And the downfall of using lie detector tests on television actually saw another man suicide 
suicide on another reality TV show. It can be quite unnecessarily exposing, those kinds of things. And it's just for drama. Oh, I mean, yeah. anyone who but, looks into it can see that lie detector tests are basically bullshit. Yeah, but all of this is for drama. It's just a matter of what is good drama and what is bad drama. And where the line is. As another point to this, where the fuck is Love Island Australia? Oh, yeah, good point. It's not going to – I bet you it won't happen this year because last year's Love Island Australia finished before Love Island UK finished. It hasn't even begun and Love Island UK has ended. But I think they're going to have to wait for The Bachelor flurry to die. No, no way. Do you reckon? They've they've just missed the boat. I think it must have been a casting thing. It hasn't been a priority for them because it mustn't be making enough money. If they haven't launched Love Island Australia and it's August 2nd and we don't have a date for launch yet, they haven't even finished casting, I don't think there will be a Love Island Australia season two. I really hope there is because I really enjoyed it. Oh my God, if you enjoyed that, Zara, I I swear to God. No, no, no. No, I know that I would like Love Island UK. As a caveat to your caveat, by the way, did you see that the second uh, Love Island season of the year in the UK? is going to be in South Africa, but it's only going to go for four weeks. So this seems far more approachable for me. Oh, I didn't see that. I know. I can't believe I'm giving you Love Island UK news. Wow. I'm so excited to have two seasons. But yeah, I'm calling it now. I've made a few outlandish calls on this podcast before. There will not be a Love Island Australia in 2019. Uh, I'm so meh about that call. I think there will be. They're too late on it. I don't see it. Anyway, I'm getting to it. <laughs> I mean, an interesting thing to be fired up about. Way too emotional. Anyway, my third story, Fiona O'Loughlin thinks she's been blacklisted by TV bosses. That is from news.com.au. Zara, I will give some context on who Fiona O'Loughlin is for our international listeners. Fiona is a very, very popular comedian in Australia, a stand-up comic, and she won... I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here, Australia, this year. Was it this year? Last year? I, I don't mean, know. All of the years feel like the same year sometimes. It feels like ages ago. Oh, but they do film over January and February. Yeah, and it didn't do very, very well this year. Like, nobody really cares about it anymore. So Fiona O'Loughlin has done an interview and she said that she has been kind of surprised about how she's still been struggling to get work after winning I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Fiona, for context, is 56 and has alluded to the fact that there is a little bit of ageism in the industry, which will be not news to anybody, particularly considering something like Brendan Favola winning I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here a couple of years ago. And for context, for people who don't know who Brendan Favola is, he is a former former um, AFL footballer who had a very public gambling and alcohol problem. He did a number of things in the public eye that were incredibly questionable. And he went back on this show, sort of won the love of the public back and is now on full-time breakfast radio in Melbourne. Yeah, basically he's a reformed man. I mean, he's done lots of interviews even recently in the past couple of weeks. He was on um, Bob, which is a footy show on Fox Footy. <laughs> Yes, I watch Fox Is Footy when Bob I'm not Murphy's? watching Love Island. Yes, it's Bob Murphy. Do you love that I know that? Yeah, and he was speaking about that time, and I think he is fully reformed. But it's interesting, again, that Fiona O'Loughlin, I've just Googled this, did win last year's I'm a Celebrity, and since then basically hasn't been allowed back on TV. And she says that she's had a history with alcohol and had a history with mental illness and a whole host of things. And she thinks that it's her age and those combining factors that mean that TV bosses just don't want to look at her anymore. I think that has to be it because mm. the popularity is there because I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, is voted by the public. So she's clearly got the love and respect of the public. Her inability to get work has got to be coming from elsewhere. And I don't disagree with her comments at all. I think that's a very fair self-assessment. I do feel quite sad, her quote, saying she was on the wrong side of 50. Yeah. I feel like the only women that we allow to be over 50 on national television aren't allowed to actually look their age. Totally. as soon as you look that age, you are discarded and kind of ignored. I think... It does expose a really harsh reality about Australian television that we don't value women over 50 the way we should and we don't make spaces for them unless they look decades younger than what they actually are. 
My fourth story. Sunrise's Natalie Barr issues a groveling apology live on air after the show called Welfare Recipients Doll Bludgers. That is from the Daily Mail. Fucking Sunrise again. I know I went on a bit of a rant about Sunrise the other week. I don't even know what segment it was even relevant in. But I am increasingly disappointed with their almost lack of responsibility when reporting certain things and their desire to just fuel fire, unnecessary fire, by getting Pauline Hanson on or whoever it might be. This story in particular. So... You know how on morning breakfast shows they have like the two hosts and then the newsreader and they'll do like every 15 minutes or half an hour like a news bulletin of some kind. Yes. Natalie Barr was doing a news bulletin. So this is a really important point, I think, because news bulletins should be void of kind of inflammatory language like that. It should be very baseline. They shouldn't be editorialized. Exactly. And Natalie Barr read on air a line about how many doll bludgers are trying to take advantage of the welfare system. And people and Twitter just blew up about this because it had been completely editorialized. To call people on welfare doll bodges is an incredibly poor choice of words. And Sunrise has been forced to apologize. I just feel like this shit is happening too often. Like genuinely happening too often. I think it's also the appearance of television personalities who would be earning upwards of a few hundred thousand dollars each per year for what they're doing to kind of point downwards and point at the Australians who are in the lowest socioeconomic positions and tell them that they're just lazy. And that's the inference. With the word doll bludger, it's like you're so lazy. Get off the couch. Go do something. Whereas if you actually look into the facts, there are so many ways you can get penalties while you are receiving welfare that extend far beyond being lazy. The vast, vast majority of them are for stupid things like because you couldn't get through because you were on hold for 100 hours or you had a job interview or you were sick. Well, that's the thing. The story was about how many um, welfare payments were suspended because people didn't do certain things in order to get them. But a lot of people are saying, how fucking hard is it to do with Centrelink these days? Like it's impossible sometimes to deal with them. And there are a number of reasons why people's payments are suspended for reasons other than doing the wrong thing. So... I don't know at what point Sunrise will pull its head in. Like, I genuinely don't know. But their ratings are great. Like, their ratings are pretty good. They cater to a really conservative audience, right? And this is a narrative that's often wheeled out in conservative audiences, that those who are struggling in Australia are struggling because they aren't good enough. They're they're not not, trying hard enough. They're not trying hard enough, which is just categorically untrue. It completely ignores all the layers of privilege and systemic disadvantage that permeates everything and in our world. And how cyclical it is too. Yeah, it's it's pretty atrocious. Hopefully they do better. I'm not going to hold my breath. <laughs> my fifth story. Kate Langbrook clarifies marital status after split comments were taken out of context. That is from Nine Honey. Can you explain this? This went completely over my head. Tell you what, this is a lot about the state of our media today. So Kate <laughs> like Langbrook. the last one, did it? <laughs> I know, right? Kate Langbrook did an interview on the second series premiere of Podcasts 1, A Life of Greatness which is a podcast I haven't heard of. Okay. And discussed, she, in that interview, she discussed a lot of things, namely her life. I didn't know she was brought up as Jehovah's Witness, but she also spoke about her son's cancer battle and her relationship with her husband. In the interview, she said that they had a pretty rocky start to their romance and split very early on. Everybody picked up this story and ran as if they had split very recently. Is that as in they were running clickbaity headlines yeah. that alluded to the fact yeah. that Kate reveals all about shock split from husband? Correct. And then you click in and you realise this was a split that happened 20 years ago. Yeah, but how many people choose to click in when you see a headline like that? You shouldn't have to click in to get the context. The context Mm. should be in the headline. So she was forced to address this on her radio show with um, Dave Hughes saying, we are together and we are fine. We broke up 18 years ago. (laughs) 
It's so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. And it says so much about the state of the media, particularly Daily Mail headlines, who I think are at the forefront of this, mm. and says a lot about not taking headlines seriously. Like, don't form an opinion on a story just by reading a headline. How annoying would that be as well, to be in Kate Langbrook's position and feel like you can't say anything because Everything that comes out of your mouth could be twisted for a headline and for clicks. I think that's how most people in the public eye feel, Mm. that anything they say can be twisted and put into a headline because that's exactly how they're treated. It's amazing that they still want to do interviews sometimes. There is a real hesitancy, I feel, amongst like the A-list Australian celebrities in doing interviews because they just don't have any trust there and I don't blame them for that. Not at all. Is that all you've got for me? Well, the last one was yours, but yes, the first four are all that I've got for you. (laughs) Thank you so much. The Bachelor Australia is back and this year Channel 10 are doing things a little bit differently. They've brought in Matt Agnew, perhaps the most obscenely attractive astrophysicist this world has ever seen. Out of this world. Out of... Oh... I get another clap this week. You suck at memes, but you're good at puns. (laughs) And they're really trying to push the racially diverse narrative. Zara, what has your impression of the show been now that we are two episodes in? What has my impression of the show been? I am quietly stoked that they're really trying to recalibrate and make The Bachelor as wholesome as they possibly can. They've really pushed that home, haven't they? It is so, like, deliberately wholesome that it almost makes me laugh. And then the ads with the honey badger come back on for Trady Undies and you're reminded of all the bullshit that we were put through last year. It's funny that Trady Undies, just as a quick caveat while we're here, that Trady Undies are still advertising in The Bachelor because I read this week when we were talking about Trady Undies because you did post about those ads in our Facebook group. And how they make me want to die inside. Yeah, which is not hyperbolic at all. No, they literally (laughs) make me want to decay slowly, cell by cell. (laughs) So Trady Undies did an interview or the head of Trady Undies did an interview with Ad News last year after The Bachelor and said that their sales rose by double digit figures after they put ads in the middle of Honey Badger's Bachelor season. So clearly them targeting women with regards to Trady Undies is working, which is bizarre. The ads are working even if you hate them or not. Do you remember as well, this is embarrassing because last year I think in our finale episode after The Bachelor aired, I was like, Trady is going to suck now. No one's going to want to buy things. (laughs) Like he's going to lose his Trady deal. No one will want to buy underwear with his face on it. I was so fucking wrong. I am the worst when it comes to advertising clearly I have no idea what works I hope a lot of your other predictions are proved wrong I cannot wait for Channel 9 by the way to announce the Love Island Australia <laughs> premiere next week knowing my luck this episode will go up <laughs> and two minutes later Love Island will be like who do we know at Channel 9 if we can just like get that leaked very soon anyway I do remember that I, I was probably agreeing with you we were both like oh Honey Badger won't be able to get any deals ever I literally thought it was the end of his career he's probably made an obscene amount of money since absolutely anyway let's actually talk about this season of The Bachelor, ratings went bad this week. So ratings weren't terrible, which actually did surprise me. 828,000 Metro viewers tuned in to the premiere Mm -hmm. of this season in comparison to The Honey Badgers, 940,000, but that was completely understandable. People were going to tune in to The Honey Badgers because girls were going to grab their boyfriends. Absolutely. In a really general analysis (laughs) of that figure. So I actually am quite impressed with that number because I think People were starting to tire of The Bachelor, but they obviously sold the promos in well enough that people were willing to come back. You know what as well? I wouldn't necessarily look at the ratings for The Bachelor and be all that concerned that they're on a bit of a slide because I think so many women, myself included, watch The Bachelor on 10 play because The Bachelor's audience is younger and the younger your audience is, the more they want things on demand when it suits them and they're going to go digital. So I don't think 
ratings from the time that it aired at 7.30 on a Wednesday or Thursday are necessarily accurate for a show like this because so many people would watch it online. No, I completely agree. And then there's the other fact that they have a complete monopoly on an entire demographic, which is worth so much more than almost any other reality show. I do want to come back to once again whether you, A, really liked that it's trying to recalibrate to be wholesome again and whether you believe it. Because the Australian Bachelor initially was was able to separate itself from its international counterparts because it was like this wholesome version of this reality show where people actually genuinely did find love and people did find love. And what I found most interesting about the promo or the first episode, sorry, of the season was the fact that they obviously made Matt Agnew talk about the fact that other couples had found love, fallen in love, got mm-hmm. married and had a baby. Mm-hmm. They fed those lines to him very early. So we were reminded that this wasn't a farce. This wasn't a whole publicity stunt, that this was this existed purely for people to fall in love totally i'm in two minds about it i do think he will find love and i'm sure he will be with that person for a considerable amount of time unlike the honey badger however i also think this show is so overly produced now where it's almost enough to turn me off i think this is so far from being reality tv the way they stitch quotes together the way they hyper produce every element i think i've gone from watching and i'm sorry again i'll mention it a million times in every episode till i die i've gone from watching love island which is relatively unproduced (laughs) to watching this i think having the contestants sit in a room and talk to producers and give these quotes having them overlaid with dramatic scenes and being able to hear these quotes play without actually seeing the person's face tells me that we should be hyper, hyper cynical about anything we hear on that show when we can't physically see it coming out of the contestant's mouth. Because as someone who works in audio like you do, I hear so many quotes chopped up. In Thursday night's episode, I heard one quote replayed three times in a row to make it out like this woman had said the same I think she said bitch or she said some word in a really jarring, inorganic way. And they had just put that three times in a row to make her almost seem crazy. And as a viewer, I would really encourage everyone, if you're not picking up on that in intonation patterns, be hypercritical of anything you hear that you can't see. If you don't see it coming out of their mouth, it's probably been stitched because producers would want to show a scathing, dramatic quote. If it came out of her mouth like that, they'd want to show her face because that's dramatic and it's great content. If they're not showing the face, you've got to ask yourself why. I think it's a very good point. And I do think that it's not getting more produced as the years go on. I think we just have more experience in audio so you can hear it. I actually almost do find it impossible to listen to too because I can hear exactly where things have been stitched. And I agree with that point in that anytime you can't see it's come out of someone's mouth, think about where they could have been when they said it, at what point of the season they could have said it. They could very genuinely and are very genuinely probably getting quotes from four weeks down the track and using them over the first episode. Like you have no idea what that quote is said about, when it was said and why it was said. And I think that's why sometimes I find it hard to listen to. I mean, I'll still always watch the show, but I won't find it as believable or the caricatures I won't believe because it's just so overly produced. And you can also hear they grab onto one word. If you say one word like she's a psycho or she's crazy or she's obsessive. Obsessive is a big one. They will take that and you can hear in every episode, she's said that word once and they're going to slice that into every episode as if she's saying it in every episode. It's what they did with Casswood yeah. last year in that Casswood might have said one or two things and they replayed them over and over and over again. And if you actually went back and listened to it, you could say that it was, you could hear that it was exactly the 
same quote, not her saying it more than once, but exactly the same quote used over and over and over to make her seem a bit crazy. Even giggling, they added, I yeah. swear to God, Channel 10 can come at, come back at me on this and say they didn't, but I'm pretty sure they added giggling at the end of Cass Wood's comment to give her that crazy girl stereotype. They're doing it to contestants again this year. And even if they didn't, I think it's the knowledge that they can that's the most important thing for people watching. I do think Matt Agnew might be the safest person on reality television at the moment because I think Channel 10 will go or Warner Brothers will go to the absolute end of the earth to make sure he comes across as the world's most likable human. Mm -hmm. Like if you were going to be anyone walking into reality TV, I'd want to be Matt right now because there's no way they are going to demonize him. He's stupidly desirable. He He is. is. He is Australia's most eligible man. I would date, like I'm taken obviously, but (laughs) I don't think he'd go for me regardless. But he is a catch. I've never really watched this show, seen The Bachelor and be like, yeah, he's a good one. I would battle to the death for him. I'd probably battle to the end of the year for Matt Agnew. I think he seems kind. Yeah. Have we just – see, we've been suckered for Channel 10's – Are we in love? No. <laughs> I don't actually think we are. But I do think it's a good a good catch by 10. Mm. I am interested in your thoughts on the media digging up old photos of him and making the comparison between sort of like the clean-cut media-trained version of him. I don't know. I mean, I think they do it with everyone. I think yeah. it was interesting for media publications to do that with Matt when typically they do it with the women to show like cosmetic enhancements yeah. and look at her new lips and, ooh, she's got a boob job and all that type of stuff. It didn't phase me too much. What about you? Uh, no, I don't think so. But it just feels nasty across the board, to be honest. Like whether it's whether it's male or female, I do think it feels a bit nasty to dig up old photos and be like, hey, look how different they are for TV. Like, of course they're different for TV. TV is a completely different beast. Totally. And our chat with Georgia Love last Thursday probably shows that Matt was prepared for that going into it. I think every bachelor or bachelorette is prepared for that nasty commentary when they go on the show. What did really annoy me about the first two episodes of this season is that for the first time ever, the Bachelor producers have done a mediocre job of putting in diversity. They have been slammed every other season for having such a white bread, cookie cutter cast. This year, they've got little sprinkles of non-white contestants and they choose that every time one of them is on the screen, they're going to play like stereotypically ethnic music underneath. There are two Persian contestants. One of them was eliminated, but Sogand and Danush are both Persian. And every time either of them were on the screen, Channel 10 chose to play like vaguely Middle Eastern music. And they chose to run with the storyline that only one Persian woman could get a rose because what, out of almost 30 women, we only have room for one Persian, not two. So there was this, like, battle of the Persians, like, which Persian's going to be chosen? I don't understand. I mean, I do understand it because it's the media does it a lot with regards to to showing, not doing. Like, there's they have this huge responsibility that if they feel like they're doing a mildly okay thing, the entire world needs to know about it. Whereas I think we're really, really smart these days. And I think that the audience genuinely just wants to see diversity without diversity shoved down its face. Yeah. What do you think of the contestant? Her name, I can't remember her name for the life of me there's so many of them there's one contestant who is white but loves china and can speak mandarin they keep playing chinese music over her (laughs) why are we acting like china is like neptune but we're we're treating it like it's like this alien concept like she likes china let's play chinese music there's another really good commentary around that in that like channel 10 or warner brothers couldn't even get a chinese contestant on the show so they have to get a woman who is kind of well versed in china which is pro china yeah it's 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 weird and it doesn't land in my opinion the last thing i want to ask you is who do you think has got this in the bag because i'm going to say chelsea from the start i said my i wrote down my money is on chelsea 
The other one, I think her name's Ellie. Yeah, Ellie's absolutely not going to win. I think this is the mistake that people make with The Bachelor. Don't fall in love with a contestant too early. And I Mm. know I'm sounding like this is a science, but trust me, it's an absolute science. I will back you on this. Zara might be shit at memes and a lot of other things, but she is fabulous at picking the winner of The Bachelor from episode one. Now you're setting me up. I do think Chelsea has it in the bag. And people love Ellie, and I think that's going to be her downfall. She's too young. She's only 24. she? Yeah. Her heart will be broken in this. But they're setting her up far, far, far too early. I agree with you. Chelsea will win, not just because she is beautiful and seems pretty amazing, but because she's super fucking clever as well yeah. and in a really similar field to him. And I think if you're, if you're an astrophysicist, you're not going to go out and date a chef. You probably want someone who knows about your field and knows what the hell you're talking about half the time. True? False? I, mean, I don't know. Wild generalization, but I'll roll with it. One final point. Is it weird? Like, am I getting old? Or is it weird that the contestants are so young? They have got four 23-year-olds on this season. They're always this young. We're just getting older than them. Oh, my God. I'm so old. Yeah. I thought about that because I saw you wrote that down and I thought, no, they actually, they always have a couple of 23, 24-year-olds. But now that we're 25, we're older than some of the contestants on the show. And I think about going on that show and I feel like a baby. I wouldn't know what the fuck to do. I don't think I'm ever going to feel like an adult. I feel like I'll go through life, be 85 and be like, when am I going to grow up? (laughs) Oh, my God. How do we get here? (laughs) Doctor. Thank you, next bitch. This week in a piece for Man Repeller, founder Leandra Medine wrote a piece titled Open Thread, What's Your Take on Open Marriage? It started a long conversation about open relationships and polyamory and why we feel so threatened by both concepts. It comes just a month after Willow Smith told her mum, Jada Pinkett Smith, on their Facebook Watch TV show, which is wildly popular these days, Red Table Talk, that she sees herself eventually having some kind of open relationship. It's taken a little while, but does it feel to you, Mish, that we're finally ready to talk about polyamory and open relationships in a way that doesn't treat them as a joke or totally illegitimate? I think in progressive spaces we probably totally. are. I don't think the average person on the street would be super open to the idea. This was labelled by NPR just a couple of months ago as the new sexual revolution. It's thought that up to 5% of couples in the US are now polyamorous and are looking outside the relationships that they have for sexual exploration. So for me, I know in my own life, I feel like discussions of polyamory and uh, intellectualizing polyamory is popping up left, right and center. Is it the same for you? I do think that conversations about it are coming up more and more and more in a way that doesn't treat them as a joke or as a clickbait headline, which I feel like is really important. I have to say, though, in preparation of doing this segment and having this conversation, I did have to completely open and widen my mind because I think my default is being incredibly closed-minded when it comes to things like this. I have been so dismissive in the past. I almost haven't even bothered exercising the idea that it could be a legitimate way to kind of have a fruitful and long and thriving relationship. Do you think that's because you have like quite a conventional upbringing? Totally. Like the most nuclear upbringing ever. Yeah. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. Like, I don't doubt that there would be people listening to this almost immediately dismissing it as a legitimate way to have a relationship. I think for the sake of transparency, I still don't even know where I sit on it, but I think that's really important. I will probably jump across multiple arguments in this conversation because I've been going back and forth all week as to to what I think about it all. Yeah, well, I think there's the rational side of my brain that thinks that polyamory makes a lot of sense for a lot of people, and that's great. And then there's the emotional side of my brain that thinks I could absolutely not do it. I am way too jealous, way too conventional, way too white bread for it. That's what I wonder. Like Willow Smith said that she loves men and women equally and that she wants to have a relationship eventually where she can see having two people or three people or more than that in the relationship because she can do it. 
I can't see myself entering into a relationship where I wouldn't be jealous or wouldn't be wondering what it means about me if somebody else is going off. And I know that's pretty close-minded, but I think that's absolutely the majority mindset. Yeah, I think we're as juvenile as each other. Don't worry about it. The one thing that gets me is who has the time for this? 100%. Who has the time to have a really beautiful, wholesome relationship with their partner that's healthy and communicative and all the things that you want it to be? And then also have time for other people in your life to go and have sex with them. I'm tired. I don't even have kids and I'm tired. Imagine doing this with kids. But that's what I started to think about. Like, do people have time for this? Is it just a difference in my priorities? But I actually don't think that we live in a world where it's conducive to open relationships, which is not to say that they shouldn't happen or can't happen or people don't have time for them to happen. I'm saying it's probably much harder for people to make them work now. Like, I feel like there's so much these days that we're expected to do with our lives. We're expected to work really hard and play really hard. We're expected to be really healthy and exercise. We're expected to have meaningful and deep relationships. The world and its pace, I don't think, makes open relationships an easy reality. I think we're also expected to want to have sex all the time. (laughs) That is such an ideal to be like just sex crazed and obsessed with like sexual desire and pleasure at all points of the day. And I just don't think... Most people are wired that way. Most people are pretty overwhelmed and with tired. everything in their lives. And tired. God, so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Leandra Medine did write in her story, I also get that to be in an open relationship that permits polyamory is to change your mindset. It is to expect to a degree abundant thinking from yourself and your partner. There is likely even an argument to be made that the foundation of a successful open marriage is even more solid than that of a closed one. That if you could give yourself so intimately to someone who is not your husband or wife, but still feel most connected to them is significant, enviable. Maybe I don't trust myself to maintain that kind of knowing. Yeah, it's almost like I do see these couples and I did a lot of reading for this segment, especially in the New York Times, which has surprisingly done a lot of pieces on the rise of polyamory over the last six to 12 months. I do look at these couples who manage it and I think, wow, they're super couples with superpowers. I don't think my relationship would be able to withstand that. But that's what makes me wonder why we're so threatened by it and maybe why I've felt so threatened by it in the past. Like why it strikes such fear and dismissal in people. Like why do we actually care what other people are doing with their own relationships? And I wonder if it's a capability thing that I don't feel capable of making this happen in my own relationship. I don't feel like I have the qualities to to maintain this in a really healthy way. And I can't do this without feeling jealous or questioning my own self-worth. And therefore, they must be wrong, not me. Mm, Is it also a fear that maybe your partner would turn to you one day and ask for this? Mm, No, (laughs) I've never thought that. But maybe it is. is. I mean, a poll of US citizens found that 31% of women and 38% of men think an ideal relationship would form some form of consensual non-monogamy. And the rise of the term monogamish, which is basically that you are monogamous for most of the year and then there's maybe one or two times that you'll go and sleep with someone else, that is massively on the rise. I really, really do think that despite our discomfort, which might change over the coming years, is because this is the future of modern relationships. I think across history, monogamy, and this is in line with what Esther Perel says as well. Esther Perel is an amazing psychologist and relationship specialist. She says that monogamy used to be that you would have one person for your entire life. Over time, that changed. Monogamy has become you will have one person at a time. 
in the future, as we get older and as our lifespan increases and we are looking at spending not just 40 or 50 years with someone, but maybe 60, 70 or 80. <laughs> so many years. Are we going to open our minds to this? I actually think we are. I think monogamy for so long has shackled women. I think across history, it has really been driven by the slut narrative that women need to be pure and that when they're married, they shouldn't have slept with anyone or that once they are married, they only sleep with their husband so that they have children to one man. I think monogamy, of course, is valued on both both sides that we want men and women to be monogamous but across history it has most certainly disadvantaged women and it's pushed this idea to them that they should only have sex for having children and now that we've kind of pushed back on that we've had this sexual revolution where women are allowed to feel sexual pleasure and allowed to ask for sexual pleasure i do think polyamorous relationships will be almost the norm in the next century <laughs> i mean it's a big call god you are coming out with some wild calls i don't think it'll ever be like First i said love island I australia <laughs> won't come back now i'm saying this. i don't know if they'll ever be like a baseline norm, but I think they'll become more normal, which I think is the difference. I think if you're having a relationship that's spanning 80 years, it's a long time. Mm. I'm trying to think about this at a really base level, right? About where my emotional energy is invested when I am in a relationship. Like absolutely, I think the majority of my energy is reserved for the person that I'm dating. But I also think I have very intimate relationships with other people in my life Ooh. and share dynamics. Oh my God, don't you dare. <laughs> and share dynamics with them though that I wouldn't necessarily have or share with a boyfriend. Yeah. How dissimilar is that, I wonder, to how some people approach open relationships? Like, and I guess I'm not having sex with my friends. I know <laughs> Know that that's what you were thinking. I'm not having sex with my friends or like anyone else. But it'll only be an extra ten minutes on top of your but day. I, but like I don't think that's a defining feature of my relationship either. It's not like the difference between me dating someone mm. and me having a friendship with you is that I'm not having sex with you. Like I think there are a few more elements at play. Can we please never talk about us having sex? That's got us into trouble already. <laughs> so much trouble. I will say what surprised me about the majority of the stories I found, particularly the ones in the New York Times, was that the people interviewed about polyamory were in their mid forties and fifties. The majority of couples had been together decades. They had had children together. They had lived lives together. And that's when they decided to open the relationship up. I wonder if there's anyone who is older than us listening to us who is in a polyamorous relationship thinking, just you wait, wait till you go down the marriage path, wait till you live a life together and you realize, hang on, I want to explore things outside of this that aren't just this marriage. I do think the idea that love is not finite is an interesting one because lots of people who are in polyamorous relationships say it's amazing because love only grows the more romantic relationships you have. I think it's an interesting school of thought. I'm not sure if it's something I agree with. What do you think? I don't think we possibly could agree with that because we haven't experienced Mm. it. Like there's only been a couple of relationships that I've ever been in. I mean, I think that love generally has ebbed and flowed regardless of whether I was dating multiple people at a time. Like I've only ever dated one person at a time, but love does ebb and flow naturally. I think there are times when you are more in love with them um, and there are times when things are a bit harder. That's normal. So whether that's just a byproduct of time or not or having other people around, I I genuinely cannot make comment on. Totally. I just think the lengthening of our lives in the long run will mean the changing nature of our relationships too and maybe that will mean that we just end up having long-running monogamous relationships with a variety of people or maybe it will mean that we all become monogamish. I did want to say one thing about monogamy though before we wrap this in that I don't actually think the monogamy narrative we've been taught is actually that bogus or that much of a lie or that unrealistic. I mean I think it's worked for a very long time for a reason. Divorce aside but even a school of thought on that anyway is that that's a successful monogamous relationship that just ran its course. Mm. I think from my perspective there's something like 
like spectacularly sacred almost about having a relationship that involves two people where you are an exclusive team, where you feel like you have this bond with one other person that nobody else can almost break. There is actual genuine beauty in that. And I can absolutely see how monogamy has been glorified because of that, because there is beauty in that. This isn't some lie that we've been sold for a really long time. This has existed for a really long time for a reason. Totally. I think that's fair enough. I think that's all we've got time for today as well. I think it is. Thank you so much if you got to this end of the episode. (laughs) As always, you guys know where we are. We are on Facebook at Shameless Podcast Community. We are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. Michelle, what would you like to say to wrap this one? Uh, The meme battle will be back in 2020. So will Doggo of Shameless, January 2020. We need to have like three things throughout the year. So we've got Doggo of Shameless, which happens in Jan. We've got Meme Battle, which happens at the end of July when everyone's a little bit down. Yes. And then we have... we need something else in December. We need something special. I'll have a think about like it. Oh, something Christmas. Christmas. We need like a Christmas Shh. competition or something. We so do. Shameless is 12 days of Christmas. We're <gasps> not giving out that many gifts. Can you imagine? Although I've just planted the seed. We should I mean, do that. We've got six months to plan this. Shameless 12 days of Christmas. What the fuck does that? What do we do? I don't know what it means. I'm excited. That sounds good. Let's put ideas in the group if we've got them. Let's see how to roll this. In the meantime, have a great couple of days. We'll be in your ears on Thursday as Woo-hoo. usual. Bye guys. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.